there are so many different factors which come into making these decisions because if we spend $3,000 on staging and then someone then no longer has funds to treat and, and we recommend treatment, that kind of defeats the purpose, right? Welcome to Dog Cancer Answers, where we help you help your dog with cancer. Here's your host, James Jacobson. Hello, friend, and welcome to Dog Cancer Answers. Today, we are going to unravel everything that happens in staging a dog's cancer. What does it mean if you hear that your dog has a stage two tumor? To help us figure this out, we are joined by Dr. Brooke Britton. She is a veterinary oncologist and she calls New York City home. Dr. Britton, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So what is cancer staging and why does it matter? Great question. Cancer staging is understanding the extent of disease within the body. So in our case, the dog or the cat's body. And just like in people who are suspected or known to have cancer, we want to examine different bodily regions and understand how advanced the cancer is. If there's a origin of the cancer, a primary tumor, we want to see if it's spread or metastasized anywhere. And then we also have staging systems for what we call more liquid tumors, which typically refers to immune system cancers like lymphoma, for example. And they have slightly different staging schemes. But staging really gives us a baseline of where we're starting with a cancer. So how does knowing the staging impact what kind of treatment you offer? Well, staging is very important to know what treatments will be most effective and likely make a difference in terms of the dog's prognosis. For example, if we have a small kind of solitary, what we call a solid tumor, and we don't find any evidence that that tumor has spread, and we'll talk about the testing that can help us determine that, but mm -hmm. if we don't find any evidence of spread, we may, for example, just recommend surgery to remove that tumor. And maybe the surgery alone can be curative. The prognosis is affected the more advanced the stage is. So if we see spread, for example, to lymph nodes that drain the tumor, or we see spread to other organs like the liver, the spleen, the lungs, something more distant, as we would call it, then the stage increases and the prognosis sadly worsens. So the dogs that have more advanced stage cancers, they don't typically tend to do as well, even with more aggressive treatments as compared with dogs with lower stage cancers. Are the staging numbers the same for dog cancer, pet cancer, as they are for human cancer? In some cases, they can be very similar, but they're often different. And the staging schemes are very different across all different tumor types for dogs. Okay. So give me an example of, of the difference in like, you know, in this type of cancer is this type of a staging level, but in this kind, it's this. Yeah. So for example, in lymphoma is a classic five stage system. So stage one is the lowest stage, for example, where we just have one lymph node or one solitary lesion, like a skin lesion, for example, involved. Stage two is where we have multiple lymph nodes, but they're on the same side of the diaphragm. So the, the diaphragm at the base of the chest kind of splits the chest and the abdomen. So if we have just lymph nodes in the neck or just lymph nodes in the groin and nowhere else, that's a stage two. Stage three usually means lymph nodes on both sides of the diaphragm for dogs with lymphoma. Stage four means liver and or spleen involvement with or without lymph nodes that you can feel. Mm -hmm. And stage five would be, for example, an atypical site. 
like the skin or the kidney or the brain, just a, or the blood involvement of the lymphoma or the leukemic phase of lymphoma. So that's a very typical staging system for dogs with this cancer. And for example, with other solid tumors, we may have, you know, for example, hemangiosarcoma is a three-stage cancer. This is a common tumor that we find in the spleen of dogs. Stage one is a tumor that has not ruptured. Stage two is a very, very large tumor or typically more tumor that has ruptured and is bleeding. And stage three is where we have metastatic disease or spread to other organs, most commonly the liver or the lungs. And it varies for many different tumor types. Okay. So sometimes it's five, sometimes it's three. Three, sometimes it's four. <laughs> so it really depends on, yeah, it really depends on the particular tumor. And the World Health Organization has staging schemata, which we adhere to. So a lot of these stages for different cancers are things that people can look up and reference. They're pretty well-defined. But a rule of thumb across the board with dogs or people is the higher the number, the worse it is. That's right. The lower the number, the better it is. Usually. Okay. Yep, that's usually right. Okay. But five is the most that you encountered with, and that's with lymphoma. Typically, yeah. Right. Okay. Six or seven stage tours. Okay. <laughs> so in terms of, of getting this number, that comes back with the pathology report. I mean, that the pathologists are the ones who stage it. Actually, no. That is grade. So usually the pathologist will provide a grade of the tumor by looking at a tumor sample under the microscope, usually via a surgical sample or a tiny little punch sample or a true cut sample, needle sample. So they will provide a grade or degree of aggressiveness of the tumor. <laughs> and there are multiple different grades across tumors, usually grade one, two, or three, low, medium, high. Staging is the extent of the tumor within the body. So that's something that we as the medical oncologists determine. And the types of tests that we do for staging are variable. We usually will get baseline blood work to look at the red blood cells, the white cells, the platelets, kidney and liver values, electrolytes. We'll do imaging typically of the chest and the abdomen for many tumors Usually we're doing both, but sometimes it's appropriate to only do one or the other, depending upon the cancer. Mm -hmm. And again, we're looking for lymph node involvement, evidence of other organ involvement, such as nodules in the lungs or nodules in the spleen, the liver, things like that. Sometimes we will also do, if we're suspicious of central nervous system involvement, maybe a spinal tap to look for cancer cells in the spinal fluid. Sometimes we'll do a bone marrow aspirate to look for cancer cells in the bone marrow. So there are many different tests that we can do. If we want to be very advanced, sometimes we'll do a more advanced imaging test, like a CT scan or an MRI, just like in people. That gives a higher resolution picture of where lesions might be and also allows us in the case of CT to look at bone very carefully. There are some tumors that will spread to bone and so that test is very helpful in staging those tumors. So what is the difference in terms of understanding a cancer from the grading to the staging? So the grading is something that the pathologist assesses, and there are only a few choices. Correct. Does that also have a variable number like staging, or is it just like one, two, and three? Usually it's one, two, and three, or low, intermediate, and high. Okay. And sometimes it's just low grade or high grade. Mm -hmm. um, for example, with lymphoma. If we take a biopsy of a lymph node or an organ with lymphoma in it, 
Usually it's a high-grade lymphoma or a low-grade lymphoma. Occasionally we have intermediate-grade lymphomas. But those are the types of terminology that you would encounter mm-hmm. when you're talking about grade. What I would say is that if we have a high-grade tumor, usually we're more concerned about a high-grade tumor in terms of the potential for that tumor to come back mm-hmm. and or to spread or metastasize. But maybe we have a high-grade tumor that we caught early. Maybe it's still small. Maybe it is a low stage, meaning it hasn't spread anywhere. It hasn't metastasized. And so we could still have a good prognosis or a good outcome, even with a high-grade tumor, if we catch it early and it's a low stage. Okay. So you can have a high-grade, low stage, and conversely, you can have... Absolutely. Conversely, you can have a tumor that maybe is a higher stage, you know, it's it's able to be technically taken out with surgery, maybe something small, but if it's already spread, we see this at many times in anal sac adenocarcinomas where we may find a small tumor within the anal sac, but then we have a really big lymph node inside Mm -hmm. the abdomen because it's already spread or we have other metastatic lesions, even though the primary is very tiny. So in that case, You know, even if the tumor is deemed low grade or intermediate grade, the metastatic presence kind of trumps the grade of that tumor, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. The higher stage is always going to be more concerning because it's already shown that the tumor can move on to other areas. And by de facto, that means that it will be more difficult to treat typically. So based on what you said earlier, it sounds like there are a variety of different tests depending on the type of cancer that you would use to determine the stage. Yes. And not every test is going to be performed in every case. You know, for example, bone marrow aspiration. Typically, we're looking for tumor cells in the bone marrow with immune system cancers or what we call round cell tumors versus solid tumors like carcinomas or sarcomas, we wouldn't expect to find those in the bone marrow. So we're not doing bone marrow aspirates typically on those dogs, but we may be doing other tests like CT scan on those dogs that may not help us as much in the dog with lymphoma. So the test can vary depending upon what cancer we're dealing with. Dr. Britton, I want to take a break right here. We got to pay some bills, but more with Dr. Brooke Britton right after this. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. The green grassy beef liver spiked smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy, especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. Everpup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. Does it roll back time? Of course not. Not really. But it helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day. Because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the ever pup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. 
But to get the best price possible, join the EverPup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup, every day. If your dog has cancer, you need to get a copy of the best-selling animal health book, The Dog Cancer Survival Guide. Because no matter what you've heard, there are always steps that you can take to help your dog fight and maybe even beat cancer. At nearly 500 pages, this comprehensive guide is your complete reference for practical, evidence-based strategies that can optimize the life quality and longevity of your dog. It's written by two of the most respected names in dog cancer, full-spectrum veterinarian Damian Dressler and veterinary oncologist Susan Ettinger. With the Dog Cancer Survival Guide, you'll learn everything that you need to know about conventional treatments, surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, including how to reduce their side effects. You'll also discover the most effective non-conventional options, including nutraceuticals and supplements and diet, as well as mind-body medicine. What I love most about this book, which I've used with my own dog, Kanga, when she was diagnosed with cancer, is how to analyze the options and develop a specific plan for your own dog based on your dog's type of cancer and your dog's age, your financial budget, as well as your personality. You can get the Dog Cancer Survival Guide wherever books are sold, but if you get it direct from the publisher, you will save 10% when you use the offer code, especially for listeners of this podcast. Just go to dogcancerbook.com, and when you check out, use the promo code PODCAST, and you will save 10%. The website again, dogcancerbook.com, and use the promo code PODCAST to save 10%. I want to let you know about an important newsletter. It's called Dog Cancer News. Now, with a name like that, it is not for everyone. But if your dog has cancer, you will want to subscribe. That's because every issue features articles that will be helpful, such as low-carb dog cancer diet recipes, new clinical trials, financial resources to help pay for cancer care, information on supplements, and lots of other helpful info that your veterinarian may not know or have the time to share with you. Also, when you subscribe to Dog Cancer News, you will get a weekly update on the topics covered on this podcast, along with links and resources. So how much does Dog Cancer News cost? Well, today, you can subscribe for free. It's our gift. For a limited time, you can get a full year's subscription for free. No strings attached. Just go to this website to sign up for the newsletter now, dogcancernews.com. It takes less than 10 seconds to subscribe, and it is totally free. Do it now at dogcancernews.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We are back with Dr. Brooke Britton talking about staging in your dog's cancer. So all of these tests sound kind of expensive. What if I have expensive. what if I have <laughs> limited funds and I really can't do every test under the sun to, to figure out the staging? What do I do then? That's a great question because we want to have as much information as possible to help us make the best clinical decisions, but yet reality always comes into play. And there are so many different factors which come into making these decisions. Because if we spend $3,000 on staging and then someone then no longer has funds to treat <laughs> and, and we recommend treatment, that kind of defeats the purpose, right? right? So oftentimes we'll look at a specific tumor. If we know what tumor type we're dealing with at the outset, we'll look at that tumor and say, where is it most likely to spread? How is it most likely to spread? By the lymphatic system, by the blood? hematogenously, as we call it, what are the most common organ systems that this would spread to? And we know that maybe a small percent over here, small subset may metastasize more widely to, you know, other sites, maybe that we would need other tests for. But the chance of that is small enough that we want to put our resources to the tests that are going to give us the greatest yield. Where are we most likely to see spread? In the lymph node and the lungs? Well, then maybe we do a lymph node aspirate and chest x-rays as opposed to a CT scan, which requires anesthesia and is much more expensive. And we start there and we see where we are. There's always sort of the medical ideal. And then there's what we, you know, what is practical and what can give us the information that we need. And before I run a test or recommend a test, I'm always asking myself, is it going to make a difference in what I do? You know, if we want a really detailed, really nice looking picture, great. Everyone wants that. Mm -hmm. um, but really, is that test, especially if it's much more invasive, much more expensive, or, you know, basically much more labor intensive to do, is it really going to change my clinical decision making going forward? Sometimes it does. And then if I say, look, I really would prefer to do this, and someone says, look, I can't do that, then that's okay. And then we have to explain to people, okay, well, we could do this, gives us a little bit less information, but basically I'm going to have a blueprint to treat your dog. And, you know, we can always re-examine other testing, other imaging going forward. So these are conversations I constantly have with people because it's not just the baseline, right? It's setting people up for the journey that is treatment and reassessment. And often we're developing long relationships over time. So we don't want to, you know, drop 15K at the outset if we can help it you know, on things that may or may not move the dial down the line. So elaborate a little bit more on those conversations. If you were my vet, Dr. Britton, how would that conversation go? Well, depending upon the, the cancer. Right. <laughs> you get, pick a cancer. The, pick a cancer. Always the caveat. Yeah. So let's, let's say lymphoma. Mm -hmm. Lymphoma is a good example, right? And mm -hmm. I have a golden retriever who comes in, they're 10-year-old golden, they feel fine but their person noticed big lymph nodes while they were petting them a week ago, or the groomer noticed big lymph nodes a week ago. And they go to their primary vet, they get a lymph node aspirate, and it comes back as 
lymphoma, which typically most of the times we can diagnose off a simple needle aspirate. Sometimes we need more. So do I then need to recommend going in and taking a biopsy of that lymph node? Usually not. There are many different types of lymphoma, but the biopsy in many cases won't change at least what we do initially. I ideally recommend blood work, chest x-rays, ultrasound. I usually save a bone marrow aspirate for dogs that tend to have significant blood work abnormalities where I'm worried about bone marrow involvement. There's a testing called phenotyping or flow cytometry that we can look at to see the type of lymphoma. Very briefly, dogs fall into usually two categories, one of two categories, B or T cell lymphoma. Doing that test gives me a lot more nuance in terms of how to treat, Mm -hmm. but that test can be hundreds of dollars. Mm -hmm. And so if someone says, look, I, you know, that's not in my wheelhouse right now, we can work just off the lymph node aspirate. You know, it's not ideal not to have those pieces of the puzzle, but, you know, we start to kind of go through which of the tests gives us the most information to allow me to make those types of decisions Mm -hmm. and hopefully get the best outcome for their pet. And which of the tests are, are kind of not quite as important. None of them are truly superfluous, but sometimes we do have to make those trade-offs between what do we think is going to give us the most information right now when we need it and what would be ideal. So are there some instances where you just skip the additional tests and skip the staging and just go, well, we're going to just go with what we have because we have limited funds to, to figure out the staging? Yeah. Sometimes I do make that decision. And where it differs is that in an immune system cancer like lymphoma, for example, many lymphomas are what we would call systemic or body-wide at diagnosis. So the assumption is almost there's probably somewhere else that's involved as opposed to just the external lymph nodes, or at least there's a good chance of that. And so sometimes, but not always, doing the staging does change what you do. But if we have a diagnosis of lymphoma and we know that that disease is usually aggressive and progresses rapidly, then putting resources towards treatment, even with no further information, is sometimes the trade-off that we make because treatment is long and it adds up. It can be very expensive if we do kind of a more intensive course of chemotherapy, which is typically the recommendation for that disease. If we have a tumor that we're concerned may have spread or is very aggressive, high grade on pathology, and we decide not to stage for whatever reason, the concern is that maybe we recommend treatments that might not be ideal. Like maybe we say, okay, well, we'll take that tumor off because right now we have a tumor and it needs to come off. Mm -hmm. And then we don't stage. Mm -hmm. And then we find out it's high grade. And maybe that tumor has spread and we just don't know it. And maybe we start treatments with best intentions. But if that tumor is very advanced stage, we may be fighting against a very poor prognosis. Mm. And in some cases, people may say, wow, I really wish that I would have known, you know, that this tumor was kind of either too far gone or far down along the road. You know, people sometimes will use the staging to make decisions. Do they feel like it's worth that investment? And, and I'm not just talking about financial, I'm talking about physical investment of getting their dog to treatments, emotional investment of going through treatment. So sometimes the staging is really helpful uh, many times. But um, again, I try to tailor it to what people are able to do, because ultimately, if they want to treat a cancer, putting money towards treatment is obviously 
what we prefer to do so they can they can get the treatment that they need. So do you sometimes see people who, when after you stage a tumor, say, okay, now that I know the staging, I really don't want to pursue treatment? Yes. Yeah, sometimes people do have that baseline. And let's say the staging is, let's say hemangiosarcoma is an excellent example, splenic hemangiosarcoma. And oftentimes those dogs, sadly, will come in with a bleeding tumor. It's life-threatening. They need to have their spleen taken out. And they do a splenectomy and usually will biopsy the liver because that's a common metastatic site if the chest x-rays are clean. Mm -hmm. If there are nodules in the chest already, oftentimes we may not even go to surgery. But um, let's say the liver comes back and that's metastatic. That's stage three. And we know that even with very aggressive treatments, while I have seen a subset of dogs do far better than expectation, typically the median meaning about half of dogs gets to this point or longer, is three to four months with very aggressive you know, chemo and other treatments. It doesn't mean it's not worth considering them, but for some people, they may say, look, you know, I'm glad I did this surgery because the life-threatening issue is over. My dog feels much better now. But if we're looking at under six months of life, despite everything that we try on average or statistically, they may not want to go forward and do something like chemotherapy. And the important thing is that we try to get as much information and give as much information as we can so that the person who is looking out for the best interests of their pet, their companion, you know, they're going to be able to feel as comfortable as possible under the circumstances making that decision, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And many times the staging is a very important part of that. And it allows me to give statistics. You know, I can cite literature and my own clinical experience that says, based on this stage and your dog's presentation, this has been my experience and this is what's been published in terms of what to expect for outcome. So people have a better idea of how their dog might do. So is that something that is common that, I mean, basically is going through the expense and process of staging a tumor useful for other dogs, useful for oncology in general, because you're giving more information to the field? Oh, yes, absolutely. So when we know the stage of tumor that we're dealing with, we can publish papers that cite that stage mm -hmm. and say, based on that, we did X treatment and this is how those dogs did. Or maybe we have a treatment that we institute across all stages and say, does that treatment actually make a difference mm -hmm. at all? Or does it make a difference for dogs within a particular stage category versus another? If we have data that we put out there and we don't do full staging, you know, maybe the statistics indicate that those dogs didn't do very well with X treatment, but maybe all those dogs had really advanced stage and we just didn't know it. And so we were sort of I hate to use this phrase, but fighting a bit of an uphill battle. Mm -hmm. And people might say, whoa, those dogs do terribly. Right. You know, why should we even do that? Right. And it's like, well, you know, then there's a little bit of bias in there, right? Because maybe those dogs were all very end-stage dogs and we just didn't know because we didn't do the test. So the tests have a lot of value. It's not just, you know, oh, we should do this because the textbook says complete staging is important. Complete staging is really important for us to know the lay of the land, so to speak. There are times when we don't need to do every single test, and a good oncologist will be able to explain that clearly to a person. 
and why certain tests are important and why others are not as important, even if they'd still prefer them. Ultimately, of course, one has to meet in the middle. You know, if if someone has finite resources or doesn't want to do something for whatever reason, we have to work with that. And we do. But it's important to explain at least to people why, even if they elect not to do it or they can't do it, why it's important. Well, I'm just intrigued with this concept of disseminating this information. You said that you could write a paper, which sounds like a lot of work. But is there a more, I mean, right? Is there a more useful, accessible way for oncologists to share the staging, the protocol, so that it becomes more readily available to other oncologists? That is how we do it. We write academic okay. papers that are peer reviewed. Okay. So, yeah. So you do. So, so you we do all the paper. we all read each. Okay. Yeah. We, we, There's no database that you guys submit to. Okay. <laughs> uh, sometimes there are across universities or larger private practice groups. There can be databases of clinical trials data, so you That's can sort of run yeah. like more nationwide or region wide statistics on these things. So yeah, okay. and those databases are extant and they are, you know, active. People actively share information into them and, and correlate that data um, with outcomes. And then there are, you know, just random papers out in the general world, the body of literature, so to speak, that we are constantly reading, reviewing, writing to help each other practice evidence-based medicine. Not just like, oh, we assume this is going on. It's probably what's happening. You know, we want to have as much evidence basis for doing what we do. Awesome. Well, I figure that may factor into someone's decision to to spend the extra money to do the full staging, because while it may not benefit my own dog, it could benefit other dogs and in, in the field in general. True. So, for example, if we do the staging on a hypothetical dog, and that hypothetical dog has very advanced disease, and their mm-hmm. person says, "Well, look, I, I just don't know if I'm gonna." want to treat. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely fair. But someone might say, no, despite this, I still want to treat. And one could make a case for the fact that those cases are the ones that really need to be put out there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Not to pressure people into treating, but the people that do want to take it a step further, even when finding out, quote unquote, bad news, those dogs and identifying the dogs that do really, really well, despite the odds, you know, just like in human medicine, Why do we have some people that have dire cancers, but yet they're living 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road doing better than anyone expected or than the doctors ever told them that that they could? Those cases are really important too. And the more we know about realistically what the baseline is, where we're starting from, it can be really helpful when we're sharing this data. The more we know, the more we can inform the next decision for the next dog. So that's exactly right to your point. That's awesome. Dr. Britton, thank you so much. You've done such a good job of explaining this rather complex area of staging. You're very articulate. Will you come back again and and talk to us more about dog cancer sometime? I would love to. I like to talk, as you can see. (laughs) So I would love to. Well, we like to listen and we like to learn from, from great oncologists like yourself. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Wow. 
There is so much to know when it comes to staging, and uh, we are so grateful for Dr. Britton joining us today. And we're grateful for you for hitting that play button. If you have a dog with cancer, staging is just one of the things that you need to know about. There's a lot more on our website at dogcanceranswers.com. I hope you will check it out where you can listen to and watch all of our previous episodes and read the show notes. That's at dogcanceranswers.com. If today's show was helpful, I hope you will do us a favor and tell a friend about Dog Cancer Answers and tell your veterinarian as well, because the more people who know about the show, the more dogs we can help. I'm James Jacobson from all of us here at Dog Podcast Network. Thank you for joining us today. And please stay tuned for shows that are also on DPN that you can listen to now. Thank you for listening to Dog Cancer Answers. If you'd like to connect, please visit our website at dogcanceranswers.com or call our listener line at 808-868-3200. And here's a friendly reminder that you probably already know. This podcast is provided for informational and educational purposes only. It's not meant to take the place of the advice you receive from your dog's veterinarian. Only veterinarians who examine your dog can give you veterinary advice or diagnose your dog's medical condition. Your reliance on the information you hear on this podcast is solely at your own risk. If your dog has a specific health problem, contact your veterinarian. Also, please keep in mind that veterinary information can change rapidly. Therefore, some information may be out of date. Dog Cancer Answers is a presentation of Maui Media in association with Dog Podcast Network. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now, on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.